Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Friday morning. I'm actually talking to you from Vancouver. I came here... Um, with my very good friend Ed Hoffman, who's helping me um, to be his in residence here for this Shabbos. I have very nice hospitality from the community and from Rabbi Rosenblatt. And I'm taking this advantage to have a few minutes here and there to uh, do a podcast that I was asked to give the other day by uh, Moshe Weisbaum, who's sponsoring this from Lakewood. And he asked a funny question, which was, um, I don't have it in front of me, but is it, is it something new that Rabbanim tell people how to vote in elections? I can only assume that he's Lakewood, and I, I'm i from Baltimore, so I don't know all the Lakewood stuff, but I saw in Yeshiva World, there was a whole thing back and forth, should they vote for this guy or not this guy or that guy? And they had, you know, these uh, videos from uh, Lakewood uh, Biggies, you know, uh, uh, the Rosh Hashibas there and all that, all that. So I can only assume that's what he's referring to. I know nothing about that situation, I'm happy to say, but um, the subject in general is an interesting one, and uh, it bespeaks probably uh, the, uh, a lack of historical awareness most people have, Nogea to elections, and that is the following, until 200 years ago, there was no such thing as elections anywhere. By that I mean... You didn't have the modern democracy where people voted in voting until late 1700s, early 1800s. Now, I have to modify that. In the Middle Ages, you had elections, both among the Christians and also among the Jews. But they were very different than elections you understand today. The franchise was extremely narrow. The number of people who voted was extremely tiny. And that's what they called elections. And it was corporatist in nature. In other words, different groups of society got different um, uh, amounts of votes. And the idea that we have nowadays is one man, one vote, or one person, one vote, and every nose counts no matter what, that's kind of new. And that's the subject of, uh, I guess, a kind of democratic, political, progressive thought over the course of 18 and 1900s. Even in the United States, you didn't have everywhere a long time that, you know, one person, one vote. Uh, you don't need me to tell you once upon a time, for example, black people couldn't vote. You don't need me to tell you once upon a time, for example, women couldn't vote. And now I'm talking about the USA, Kal Muhammad, the other countries. So when you ask the question that Rabbanim told people how to vote, what do you mean by voting? Again, in pre-modern times, uh, the Jews had their old kahillas, which means autonomous coercive communities, and it was run by board of directors, and they were elected. In fact, even the officials and committee were elected. But by how many voters? Uh, the old-fashioned way of of uh, uh, figuring out who gets to vote was based on money. With the following svarov, the community 
whether it's the United States of America or the Kehillah of Prague, for example, you know, or Rome, has a budget. You have X amount of money to spend. Who should vote and how that money is spent? The Svar is the people who contributed the most towards that money. So let's say, for example, I'm a poor person, Jewish, living, I don't know, in Barcelona in the time of the Rajba, or in uh, Italy in the time of Maran Padua, or in uh, Istanbul in the time of the Marstam, and so forth. So I don't make a lot of money. So I don't pay any taxes. If I do, it's a few pennies. Mashenkin, the guy down the block, who's wealthier, pays a fair amount of money. Now, does it make sense, the old way went thinking, that a guy like me, who basically not contributing anything, should have an equal vote with the rich guy who p- paid so much money towards the Kehillah funds? No. LMI, he should have the vote, and I shouldn't. Or, he should, or his vote should count for a lot more than mine. That's how it went. You understand, right? Now, there were plenty of abuses in the system. There's no such thing as a democratic system without abuses. I'll repeat, throughout history, there is no such thing as a democratic system without abuses. And the Richie Rich that I always talk about really did try to abuse that system. That's true. But that's what they meant by voting. So in that kind of situation, no such thing as a rabbi telling people how to vote. You get, no, there's these internal Kehillah elections, and the number of people voting is probably a dozen or two dozen or something like that. You hear what I just said? And that's for members of the board who's going to run the kill for the next year. And basically they're voting for themselves or their brothers or their son-in-laws or something like that. And then that board of directors is in charge of the money. And they will hire and fire and give out the money towards the various officials in the community. The rabbi, the basin, the chavar kadisha, whatever it is. That's how they used to do Voting. So the note of Yehuda, for example, is not going to tell the richy rich people in Prague how to vote. They know how to vote. Thank you very much. As a matter of fact, they don't want his opinion. He's an employee. You understand? Now, he is more than just an employee, but he's an employee. So they don't want him to tell, they don't want him to hear how to vote. Second of all, how are you going to say the Das Torah is to vote for this one? All these people are more or less equally from or not. And so how can you say the halach is to follow one person over another. I mean, if you tell me the guy's a Shabtai three or something like that, but that didn't really happen, you know? So, the short answer is, throughout the history of Kali Yisrael, the Rabbanim, as you call them, did not tell people how to vote in Kehillah elections. And if they did, they probably paid a big price. In other words, let's say, for example, you're the Kliyakar, and you're one of the many communities that you serve. And there was an election, because there was an election every year. Usually in Cholomoy Pesach or Cholomoy Tzokas. That's how it went. And you say, I think you should vote for Plony Plony. Well, you immediately made sworn enemies out of the other people you didn't support. So your position in the Kehillah becomes impossible. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's real life. Because the others will, will work Yom Belayla to kill you or chase you out or get you get rid of you. So Rav did not go and do that. Now, on the other hand, in the modern era, starting with the French Revolution, and after that, slowly but surely, the European countries, as you and I call them, started to get more democratic, give people the votes. And then you're talking about Jews not voting for Jewish communities, but participating in elections like we do in America, for political elections, for the parliament, for the Congress, and all that. 
again, the it depends where and when. In places like uh, Western Europe and Central Europe, like Germany and France and Italy and places like that, Drabonim had no say whatsoever. People were not interested in their opinions. Second of all, for a rabbi to express an opinion on, on who to vote for, uh, unless you're dealing with a tremendous antisemite, but then you don't need the rabbi to tell you that. Everybody knows not to vote for him. Right, if a big anti-Semite. But if between two candidates, they're not going to say, go vote you know, for this one. If you don't vote for him, then, then uh, you know, you're doing something wrong Jewishly. Because that would violate the you know, kind of democratic principles upon which the system is based, that everybody votes the way he or she sees fit. And the rabbis would have made a chil Hashem. That's how it would have been regarded. And therefore, Samson and Rachel Hirsch did not tell people who to vote for in the German parliamentary elections. You understand? They didn't do that. And, and he wouldn't. Um, it would have been resented. To tell you the truth, the next... Well, let me say this. There, uh, in certain places, certain places where peculiar circumstances obtained... You did have this. So, for example, all throughout the 1800s, most Jews of the world lived in what you and I call the Russian Empire of the old days, the Tsarist Empire, where there were no elections for anybody. So there's no question about the Rabbanim saying that who to vote for and not vote for. No elections for anybody. Uh, but there were also a lot of Jews in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And there, from the middle 1800s, there were elections. And there already... Like in Galicia, we had a quarter of a million Jews. Uh, there, very interestingly, there arose tensions that we are, you and I are familiar with in the modern era between from and non-from Jews Orthodox versus Reform versus Haskalah. I talked about this in my lecture series last summer, I think, about Galicia, two summers ago in greater detail. So there indeed, um, once the Jews got the right to vote, in the Austro-Hungarian parliamentary elections, so there were two Jewish groups that formed, one of which was distinctly Moskilic and I would call anti-From. I think they called it Shomer Yisrael, if I remember correctly. And they had their candidates who to vote for. The From got together, this like in the 1870s, and they said, we want to make a From party to support from candidates, and so forth. And this was actually started by the Belzer Rebbe, and some others like that. And their main goal was to stick it to the to the anti-from Jewish party. The worst thing in the world, it's like somebody, Teddy, will say like this, I live in New York, and I'm voting for a congressman, and that congressman is going to be pro-Hamas. He's going to say, I have a ceasefire now. Because Israel's killing the babies. Even if he's Jewish. What the heck did I vote for him for? You understand? Because I like his uh, uh, position on immigration reform. I mean, what am I voting for him for? If he's anti-Israel, what am I, nuts? Now, there are Jews that vote that way. But from Jews, I, generally speaking, don't do that. You think about Jewish interests. The same way the others are thinking of their interests. That's what democracy is. Everybody's thinking of their interests. So, in that kind of a situation, the... Frum made a, a party called, uh, what was it again? 
not a shomri's machziki ados, and they actually elected, believe it or not, to to parliament. In other words, to the Congress, the son of the Chassam Sofer, Rabbi Shimon Sofer, the Rav of Krakow, who's not Hasidish, and there were always tensions between the Hasidim and the non-Hasidim. But in spite of that, he spoke a better German, and he was more diplomatic. And within the world of the ultra-Orthodox, he had the most sophistication for par- parliamentary duties. And he was elected to the Austrian parliament in Vienna. So then, indeed, from 1870s on, in Galicia, the big Rabbanim, the Hasidic Rebbe's, did indeed tell the people who they vote for. Now, I'm not saying they always did vote the way they were told, but that kind of idea was out there in Galicia. And, you know, since you're talking about Hasidim mainly and things like that, people didn't say, how can he tell me how to vote? You know, a Hasid to a Rebbe, if he says, uh, you know, uh, Simon says, if he says, jump, you jump. So, you did have that. In Hungary, I don't remember this being the case. In the Kingdom of Hungary, there were different conditions than were in Galicia, and different elections. The Hungarian election system was rotten beyond belief. <laughs> you could just figure it out for yourself. But um, it, the the the, govern, the head of the ruling party in Hungary in the 1800s, early 1900s, was not anti-Semitic, so the Jews were okay with that. Uh, Tisa was their name, the father and son. Uh, I don't remember him telling anybody to vote for it. So, in the whole modern time of the 1800s, the only example I can think of is in Galicia, where indeed you did have the prototype of what later on became the Agodis and all the rest of it. And uh, when Rabbi Shimon Sofer was alive, he was elected once or twice. He then died young. He was, you know, it's, it's interesting. He was, he, some Hasidim insulted him or something like that. It really got to him. He made, made like a porn grama against him. And he died from Vaitog. Um, that's why I, I remember that story. But whatever the case is, that's the only example. When you get to the 20th century, it gets more interesting because um, after the First World War, in Poland, for example, you did indeed have a Jews voting en masse uh, in national elections and also in Cahill elections. So there things got extremely politicized because you had a, a dozen Jewish parties competing for the vote. You had the Zionists, the Socialists, the Communists, the Bundists, this thing, that thing, you know, the Aguda, the Mizrahi, the Jabotinsky, you know, the Polish uh, Jewish uh, assimilationists. You had a whole, you know, uh, uh, basket there of voter, uh, of parties to vote for, both in national elections as well in local elections. So here indeed, you started to get what this guy is referring to in Lakewood, which is a bunny telling people to vote for whether they like the guy or not, the candidate or not. And it was very controversial. And there are people who have written books on this, sort of thing in Warsaw and Lodge and all the rest of it. The Hasidim, especially in Poland, using advantage of the Hasidic bloc, did fight to try to gain control of the seats uh, in the local Kehillah uh, organizations, you know, in the towns. And they also uh, did tell people to vote for it 
mobilized the public, as we would say, for the national elections. It didn't do much good, but there were members of the parliament that were elected by, so to speak, from members of parliament elected by the, uh, let me be more exact. There were Haredi and Hasidic members of the Polish parliament, uh, because there were three and a half million Jews in Poland, who were elected to the Polish Senate and the House of Representatives as, you know, uh, senators and congressmen. Rabbanu with long beards. <laughs> to, to, I mean, you can go take a look, you know, Google it, you'll see. And remember, Mayor Shapiro, the famous person for the Lublin, you know, from the Chachmei Lublin, uh, was for a while a senator in Poland. I don't think he spoke Polish. That's a separate thing. So there, indeed, you did have what um, what Moshe Weissbaum was asking. It's kind of new, 1920s and 30s, but the, the opportunities present themselves for the first time. So I guess you'd say for the last 100 years you've had this phenomenon. Because it was there all during the 1920s and 30s. Uh, and, of course, this was transferred, along with the rest of Polish political culture, into the Zionist movement and the state of Israel and Israel. So you have the same thing in Israel. You have all kinds of different Jewish parties competing. And the Agudas Israel, to take one example, of a Haredi party, or the Mizrahi party, for uh, you know, a religious Zionist party, I mean, this is what they do. They're rabbis from 1948 on were campaigning. And they're telling the people who to vote for it. Uh, I mean, you wouldn't remember, it's before my time also. Ron Cutler from Lakewood used to fly to Israel in the 50s in the Knesset elections, like in 1951 and 55, to, uh, you know, do, do election rallies. Those to mobilize the vote. Because everybody knows that the more votes you get in the Knesset, the more leverage you have to get stuff you need. So, indeed... In Eretz Yisrael, you do have Gedolm. The only thing is you have competing sets of Gedolm supporting competing candidates. So as we saw not that long ago, when Rabshach says, vote for this guy, and don't vote for that guy, and Avad Yosef says the opposite, so what do you do? Meaning, if you're Ashkenazi, you go this way. If you're a Sephardi guy, you go that way. You get what I'm saying? You have these kind of things. <laughs> Where all the Aguda politicians and, and Mizrahi politicians, uh, um, Sterling Pure, you know, honest as the day is long, we don't ask such questions, <laughs> right? You know, politics is politics. And in Israel, it's particularly ugly. But, you know, this, this is, like I say, a part of a democratic system. So from Poland and, and straight into Medina um, Israel, that you definitely have. That you definitely have. <clears throat> now, in Poland, it was complicated because... Uh, if you're a Hasidic, so then you follow what the Hasidic Rebbe says, usually. If you're not Hasidic, if you're Litvish, do you follow what the Gedolim say? Who are the Gedolim? You, you, you get what I'm saying? This is the problem, from an electoral point of view, of being Litvish. You know, you don't simply say Simon says. Just because this big person or that big person says so, doesn't mean people do it. And this you see in the famous or notorious example where uh, Chaim Moiser ran for office in 1929, I think it was, in Vilna, and he didn't win. And that means that all, the, he didn't get the whole from vote. 
because he would get the whole from vote plus the non from vote, he would have won. So it's Chaimers Grzhensky, who's obviously, you don't need me to tell you, he's a God of Ador. But there are people who felt the other guy candidate, Rabbi Rubenstein, for whatever reason, is going to be better. So notice they didn't listen to instructions. And that's kind of a litvish sort of thing. Whereas, yeah, this Russia she was supporting this. I mean, let me tell you something. Who was the head of the election campaign committee of Chaim Meiser when he ran for office in 1929? The answer is the Chavetz Chaim. <laughs> no less. Look it up. So you say like this, tell somebody in Shiva today, how you talking? Der Chaim Meiser and Chavetz Chaim would say to do something and, and you don't do it? But the answer is, yeah. That's him. Same thing happened in the Republic of Lithuania, which was a separate country from Poland in the 1920s and 30s. There again, it's too complicated to explain in detail. Again, I have this on YouTube. I did a series on Jews in Lithuania a couple years ago. It's, it's somewhere on the YouTube, if you're interested in all the dirt. And in the 20s, especially in the early 20s, um, there were exactly these kind of elections for the national parliament on the one hand and for the local Cahill elections on the other. And because of that, the Frum were competing against secular Zionists and, like I say, socialists and this, that, and the other. All Yiddish Jewish-speaking parties. And the Frum were so weak in Lithuania that they made an alliance between the Agud and the Mizrahi, which was a very uneasy alliance. And uh, it's the early 20s. And they indeed, uh, you know, really pushed the Panevisharov and the Telzarov and the other, they put out cold curries and everything. You have to vote for this and this party. You have to vote for this and this guy, and so forth. I remember I saw an old document where it's like a, the, the Agud or somebody like that is um, they use different names. They call it Achdus Israel, Shlomo Israel. I forget. They, they didn't call it the Agoda. And again, it was like a, a, a combination. And they they supported for parliament. I mean, this is going to sound funny. They put up a guy to run for parliament who was actually in the Mizrahi, but he was loyal to the Panavisharov and to the Covenant Rogue. Uh, his name was uh, Etzioni, I think, or something like that. Holzman Etzioni. And uh, Lithuania is very uh, complicated, very interesting in that way. And he followed their instructions. So they didn't care what he, you know, whether he has a Kipastruga or a, or a Strimal or anything. They want somebody to follow his instructions. So they put out campaign posters that said, Oi, if you vote for the other party, it'll be a Pelegish Begiva. <laughs> I remember I saw that. Meaning that's the most scandalous thing you can think of. It's going to happen to us like a Pelegish Megiva. There's a little bit of a difference between that and Pelegish Megiva, but that's what they said. And again, the the uh, the from I say from the observant, religiously observant Litvish public sometimes followed all these, you know, orders and and, and uh, admonitions. Sometimes did not. So it's a mixed bag. You understand? Later, the elections were suppressed in Poland. Uh, what do you call it? Lithuania became like, like a dictatorship. But while they had the democratic system, you did have. So the short answer is, in modern times, charismatic rabbis did undertake 
to uh, use their charisma to influence their followers, people they look to follow them, on who to vote for. Now, there's no way to enforce it. Like I just said before, plenty of people listen and vote the way they want. And that is true even today. Many uh, political observers, from and not from, will say that there's a lot of Haredi voters that don't toe the party line. Otherwise, the Agoda would have more than they got. I think got seven last time. And that's more than ever before. Uh, they really should have more like 10 or something. But there's plenty of from Jews, Haredim, who can't stomach the uh, crooked people that are put up sometimes as they as they see it and don't vote the party line. You know, it's, it is what it is. Uh, and that has to do with the charisma of the Gadol and, you know, and, and of the Hasidic Rebbe and all the rest of that stuff. So if it is true that in Lakewood they said to vote for this person and that person, I cannot say it's new. It's not old in Jewish history because there were no such things as elections until the 1800s and for the most part the 1900s. Uh, now we're in the 2000s. So, you know, things are a little bit different. But substantially, when there was an opportunity to exercise their influence, they did. And uh, that's only to be expected because people have their ideas of what is in the in, in, in the interests of their community. And they're not going to, you know, uh, fail to use whatever influence they think they have in order to advance their gains. In other words, money. Yeah, that's how the world works, and that's how all the political interest groups work. There are some who say that religious people shouldn't be mixing in politics. Yeah, the non-religious people say that. <laughs> the religious people say religious should mix in politics. And there, there you have it. You know, it's like one big merry-go-round. So um, that's how I see it. So it's, it's not like anything brand new, although the details in each and every case are always going to be unique. So, uh, anyway, I hope that satisfies uh, Moshe Weissman and the others who are interested. And uh, that's a little bit of a, I guess, of a historic uh, perspective on this phenomenon, which I'll say again, is fairly, uh, fairly recent in Jewish history. I'm just thinking of one other thing. I know in Germany, in the 1900s, in the 20s, when Rabbi Breuer died, Shlomo Breuer, there was a whole big thing where the community had to elect a new rabbi and the Breuer family said, you have to uh, uh, um, elect the old rabbi's son, and they didn't. And again, they tried to put pressure on people and all sorts of famous, scandalous episode, whatever. And, and this is in Frankfurt, like in 1926 or something like that. And you see, the rabbis did try to, you know, exercise them, but it didn't work. Notice the Balabatim, who were all Shomer Shabbos, they voted the way they felt they wanted to vote. So the idea of voting or listening to someone else who tells you how to vote is always a tricky and gray area kind of business. Um, and you know, it always and and some people are very good with it, and some people, you know, they 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 have a bad taste about it. Anyway, I figured I'd do this now that I'm in my uh, hotel room waiting to be picked up. And uh, with that, I wish everybody a good Shabbos, all from the far west coast in British Columbia.
For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.